Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And today we are going to bring to you an interview with Sarah Riggs Amico, a Democratic candidate for the U.S. Senate. But before we begin that interview, I wanted to take a moment for Peach Pod to join others in affirming and making clear that Black Lives Matter. In Minnesota, George Floyd recently became the latest victim in a long list of Black Americans who have been murdered by police. Police violence against Black Americans, built on racist institutions and informed by a white supremacist culture, has been and continues to be unacceptable in American society. People of conscience, led by Black movement leaders, have taken to the streets in Atlanta and other cities to demand that this violence end. And for that effort, they have been attacked by police and other law enforcement forces that have used tear gas, pepper spray, batons, and rubber bullets in an effort to suppress the concerns that these demonstrators have sought to raise. This treatment of demonstrators has been unconscionable. To make matters worse, President Trump and law enforcement, under the control of state and local officials, have violated values that are foundational to our democratic society. Using military officials as an instrument for his political ambitions, this week President Trump ordered the National Guard and the U.S. Park Police to tear gas and disperse demonstrators outside of the White House so that he could walk across the street and stand outside of a church for a staged photo op. And journalists covering these demonstrations have been a target for police in cities across the country. The arrests of AJC staff photographer Alyssa Pointer and Washington Post freelancer Haston Willis, these two arrests are just two of the dozens of examples of journalists whose rights to cover public events have been abridged by law enforcement during this crisis. We at PeachPod stand in solidarity with other organizations and individuals who have condemned this violence and the longstanding atrocities Black Americans have experienced at the hands of law enforcement and other American institutions. We will be adding to this conversation in future episodes. In line with our typical coverage, we are working to educate ourselves about what the state government can do to end these tragedies, as well as speaking with people who can lend their expertise to the debate sure to happen in Atlanta. Demonstrators are demanding action from political institutions, and our aim is to share with you how these institutions do or don't respond. Lawmakers are already rallying around some ideas for reform, and to give you an idea, here is Representative Park Cannon, a Democrat from Atlanta, speaking about proposals that Democrats will consider at a press conference earlier this week. What we know in this time is that young people are speaking up and are speaking out about police brutality but they are not being listened to. And we are standing here in the middle to say, share the full story of what is going on in America, in Atlanta, and in Georgia. We look forward to bringing forth the announcement on tomorrow, June 1st, of creating a Metro Atlanta Uprising Task Force. That task force will mirror the other task force related to criminal justice reform rolled out by our previous governor. And we will continue to bring together community organizations that stand with us here today, the NAACP, Sister Song, More Melanin, More Power, the students from the AUC, and others to say that we must put structural changes in place to address these issues. We know that excessive use of force can be put in a database. We already have legislation for that. 
we know that official immunity needs to be challenged in this state of emergency and crisis in which the policing tactics are increasingly being escalated. We will look forward to hearing from you on our hotline so that you can tell us more about is what is going on in the community. And in the meantime, look out for more information about the public announcement of the Metro Atlanta Uprising Task Force on tomorrow, June 1st. You'll hear more from us and guests in future episodes, but we did not want to continue our normal coverage without making clear that Black Lives Matter and that we stand with people across this country who seek to protect those lives. Now, here's my discussion with Sarah Riggs Amico, Democratic candidate for the U.S. Senate. All right, joining the podcast is Sarah Riggs Amico, a Democratic candidate for the U.S. Senate. She most recently served as the executive chairperson for her family's trucking company, Jack Cooper, and she ran as the Democratic nominee for lieutenant governor in 2018. Welcome back to the podcast, Sarah. Thank you so much. It's good to be back. So um, we've got some really somber topics to dive in on today. But before we get to that, um, can you tell our listeners just a little bit about your background and why you're running for the U.S. Senate? Absolutely. Uh, I've been a business executive for the last 17 years, finished my master's in business administration at the Harvard Business School in 2003. And to be honest, most of the last two decades, I've been saving and creating jobs, thousands of them. Uh, My family, as you alluded to earlier, bought a little trucking company in 2008 with about 120 employees, just as the recession was starting. And we were uh, very proud of the way we saved and rescued broken businesses throughout the Great Recession. And one of the toughest economies we've seen in my lifetime, we grew from that 120-person operation to about 3,000 employees when I stepped down in January to run full-time for the Senate. Uh, Very proud to have had 2,200 union members working for me, Teamsters and Machinists. They were my best partners in the business. Uh, We were very proud to pay 100% of the health insurance premiums for thousands of our employees and their families to provide paid leave for men and women, uh, and to even put a daycare on site in our Kennesaw, Georgia headquarters to help our families here uh, meet the affordable childcare burden, uh, which really has become a burden, particularly for working people in this country. So we tried to do all the right things. Um, And, you know, at a certain point when I'm giving healthcare, paid leave, childcare, and collective bargaining rights to, you know, to my employees and protecting those and fighting for them, it felt like I was doing more of David Perdue's job for my employees than he was. And so I had the incredible opportunity to go um, in 2018 to be the nominee for Lieutenant Governor running alongside Stacey Abrams. Similarly, that run was born out of a desire to make change around the issues that I've experienced as a business person and as a mom and as a wife of an immigrant. But I think a lot of those issues have really been amplified. In 2018, I was very proud to earn the endorsement of former President Barack Obama and over 1.8 million votes, more than any Democrat in history running for lieutenant governor, history of our state, uh, and about 470,000 more votes than Senator David Perdue has ever won. So we can absolutely beat this guy, but it is going to be a fight and we're gonna have to choose the nominee that we put up against David Perdue, it needs to be somebody that is a champion for working families, that's a champion for rebuilding our economy in a way that creates uh, equity and fairness. And at the same time, we've got to do all of that in the shadow of a pandemic that's shown us just how important it is to make sure no one is sick because they are poor or poor because they're sick, to get affordable health care to everyone in this nation. Um, And then I will also say, you know, the experience in 2018 really 
emphasized for me how critical it is to protect the right of every eligible voter to have equal access to the ballot box and to protect the security of our elections. So voting rights, election security, affordable health care, and economic security for working families are the heartbeat of this campaign. And I look forward to talking with you about all of the above today. Yeah, um, so we are going to dive into a couple of somber issues today. Uh, Sarah and I talked last back in September, and we talked about sort of a broad array of policy issues. I will uh, link that episode in show notes. So if you want to hear from Sarah about more of these things, um, you can check out her views there. Um, But to start in on our first topic here, we're going to talk about demonstrations against police brutality that have uh, really rocked the city of Atlanta. Following the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, plus many others, cities across Georgia and the country have been the site to demonstrations against police brutality. Sarah, can you start by just reflecting for a moment on how you are absorbing the message that demonstrators are sending in response to these tragedies? Absolutely. Um, These communities have been denied justice for so long, have been denied equality under the law as promised in our constitution for so long that they've taken to the streets. And I fully support this movement. Um, Black lives matter. Black families matter. Black joy matters. Black safety in our criminal justice system matters. And it's time for all of us, regardless of the color of our skin, uh, to take up this cause and walk shoulder to shoulder with Black Americans who are tired of dying deaths at the hands of law enforcement that would be absolutely inconceivable for people of any other color. And, you know, the reality is, I hope everyone can protest safely. I hope that we can bring about the change we need. But I want to be absolutely clear. Uh, We should not have, in particular for white politicians, folks criticizing the people who feel they have to take to the streets and protest simply to have their voice heard. Um, simply to say and to show this country what it looks like to be a parent of a black child where you worry about the safety of their very lives just based on the color of their skin. And in American history, uh, that kind of right to protest, um, to peaceably assemble, to ask the government um, for a redress of grievances, it goes back to the very origin of this country. I was very fortunate last fall to take my daughters to the Boston Tea Party Museum. And we talked a lot about um, when communities have been unseen and unheard or treated with such a lack of justice for so long, how that erupted into the Tea Party and into the American Revolution. And I hope that this moment in our country similarly uh, takes us to new levels of justice and equity and fairness um, because there are deep wounds in this nation, um, starting back, uh, you know, 400 years ago, when the first enslaved Africans arrived on our shore. Uh, This country was built on the backs of enslaved labor, and we have yet to reconcile properly with that. We have yet to reconcile with the deep wounds and fallout of that. And in particular, um, you know, it isn't just Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd. As you said, it's so many names. We've got to decide in the nature of our character as a country, are we okay with that? Or do we finally get so fed up that we demand change from our leaders? 
And from the leaders who fail to take action, like David Perdue has failed to take action, he lives in Glynn County, where Ahmaud Arbery was shot and murdered while jogging unarmed. He lives there. He has been absolutely absent from this debate and discussion. He has shown no leadership. Leaders like that have failed us and they should be voted out of office. So I'm absorbing it in the sense of hope, of hoping that this is finally the time where we move forward as a country. I'm in a listening mode and a learning mode. I wanna be a, an ally in the best way that I can. I wanna give deference to black mothers who have been talking about these issues for generations and we have not heard them well, right? Reproductive justice is not just about your right to decide when and where and how and with whom you have a family or access to abortion care. Reproductive justice also means the right of every parent to raise their child and parent their child in a safe environment and community. And black women have been telling us that for decades. It's time we listened. They, they are living with the fallout of this and it has to stop. So I'm listening, I'm learning, and by God, I am speaking up. I will continue to speak up as often and as loudly as I can until this is fixed. So let's talk about what some of this action would look like. What specific policy changes do you think are needed from the federal government to stop police from continuing to inflict violence on people of color in this country? Yeah, well, I would start with having a president uh, who doesn't militarize peaceful protests like we saw from President Trump yesterday, tear gassing peaceful protesters so that he could walk in front of a church and wave a Bible for a photo op. He didn't stop to pray. He didn't stop to reflect. He didn't stop to listen to protesters. He literally cleared out protesters with tear gas so that he could wave a Bible in a photo op. First Amendment rights are not optional and a Bible is not a prop. And so I would start by electing a president who knows how to lead and work to bring people together and heal these really deep wounds. And Joe Biden is that man. Um, the second thing in the United States Senate, we've got to have a real focus on policy. You know, in the Obama administration era, there were thorough investigations from the Department of Justice into police situations where there was an, uh, uh, you know, whether it was the loss of life or um, whether it was just a miscarriage of justice in some other fashion, the Obama Department of Justice was active in rooting out injustice and inequity, specifically um, with respect to black Americans. And under the Trump administration, we've really seen them all but disappear. Uh, so I would support a more aggressive positioning with respect to police investigations and police reform from the Department of Justice. And remember, five years ago, Obama's 21st Century Policing Task Force issued recommendations on policing reform. It is time to take those up now. And, you know, think about it. Policing reform should be something that every federal candidate who asks for your vote should be talking about right now, not just criminal justice reform, although it's part of a broader criminal justice conversation. There is a specific set of actions we need to take to stop the militarization of our police departments and to build our policing communities in a way that's integrated into the community, builds trust, and roots out racial inequity and injustice. Um, so I would take up and support the recommendations of the Obama panel. Um, and the last thing I will say is, I do think we also need um, to invest in communities, providing federal funding for training, uh, for research on policing methods that build trust in the community, that save lives, 
those are things that we can do directly in the United States Senate. So another crisis that weighs heavily right now on this nation and weighs disproportionately on Black people in this country is the COVID-19 pandemic. And we recently reached a grim milestone. More than 100,000 people in this country have died from COVID-19. Can you give us your assessment of how the Trump administration and the federal government have responded to this pandemic? Sluggish, slow, insufficient, and largely inept. That would be my assessment. Um, You know, we saw on January 24th that the Senate met behind closed doors, members of the Senate, with leaders from our intelligence community, the head of the NIH, the head of the CDC. And as early as that meeting, our U.S. senators, including people like Kelly Loeffler and Mitch McConnell, and I'm sure all of their colleagues, including David Perdue, had an eye toward what was coming. But there's not a person in our state who can tell you with a straight face that those senators from Georgia, including David Perdue, then came to our state and helped prepare our families for what was to come. Not a one. Instead, they traded stocks. They profited off of a pandemic that is killing Americans. So what the federal government should have done early on was mobilize production for PPE uh, and ventilators. They should have been much more forthcoming about the need for quick and complete lockdowns early to flatten the curve while we built that capacity out. Um, They should have listened to science. We saw the CDC's guidelines for reopening initially shelved, literally pulled out of the public's review by the Trump administration. We saw a president stand at a podium in the White House and support all manner of half-truths and even untried medical remedies. It's wildly irresponsible, and it will cost human lives all over this country. So I'm unimpressed. Uh, I'm unimpressed that the president has failed to acknowledge his own shortcomings. He's the guy that fired the White House pandemic response team in the National Security Council. He's the guy that's advocated gross cuts to the CDC's budget. Um, The Obama administration, including Vice President Biden, left a playbook for pandemic preparedness for the Trump administration. And yet, we still found ourselves caught off guard at the expense of American lives. So I am extraordinarily unimpressed, and I believe that both David Perdue and the president will have accountability at the box office in November. At the ballot box, sorry. (laughs) So there's the public health aspect of this that you were talking about. There's also the economic aspect of this. And aid programs that have been put in place by Congress, like expanded unemployment insurance or small business financial support, will end this summer if they're not renewed by Congress. In your view, what does an adequate congressional response look like that would help people and businesses deal with the short-term financial challenges caused by this pandemic? And what would the cost to people be of not providing that adequate response? Yeah, you really have to divide the response, Kyle, into three buckets. So there's the immediate public health and economic crisis, the joblessness crisis. We are inching toward 40 million Americans. We have so far over 38 and a half million who have filed initial jobless claims in the last three months. Um, Just to put it in perspective, in the entire Great Recession, initial jobless claims totaled 8.6 million. So we are now more than three times what the entirety of the Great Recession is. This is deeper and far more dire uh, than anything we've seen in my lifetime. 
So we've got to deal with the immediate response and that requires putting cash in people's pockets. So I was encouraged to see that the CARES Act sent checks to working families. Um, I'm not sure it did enough for low income communities, for working people. Uh, I think I was encouraged to see the Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP funds. In fact, as a business owner, I'm somebody who's been through the process of applying for PPP, um, had a business that was shut out of the PPP in the first round, like so many women in minority-owned businesses. In fact, 90%, um, more than 90% of women in minority-owned businesses were shut out of that first round of federal relief funds in the PPP. And at some point as a country, we're going to have to investigate how that happened and set up the infrastructure to make sure it never happens again. So I was encouraged to see the PPP. I was encouraged to see they renewed it. Um, but there were things I would have done differently as somebody who spent the last two decades as a business person. For example, I would have had a specific bucket of capital for what they call micro enterprise. So these are the literal mom and pop shops, a handful of employees. Uh, that's very different than a business that has four or 500 employees. And those businesses, what we call small businesses, which is 500 employees and under in this country, uh, they have different needs than mid-cap companies, which have different needs from the Fortune 100. So in my view, the PPP probably should have had specific buckets of capital allocated for micro-enterprise, those mom-and-pop family businesses, small shops, restaurants, um, a lot of women and minority-owned businesses in that category, by the way, and an important source of job creation in this country. You also should have had a separate um, set of money set aside for women and minority-owned businesses or veteran-owned businesses. The, the sort of um, the kinds of programs that we have designed to level the playing field in terms of equity and economic security um, should have been taken into account. But I also understand we were in uncharted waters and people were trying to move as quickly as possible through a Congress that, you know, by and large over the last few years has been gridlocked. So I'm grateful that they were able to get something through. I hope in the future we are able to do more set-asides for micro-enterprise and women and minority-owned businesses. Um, you know, that's kind of the immediate. And, and don't, don't neglect to the cash in the pockets of everyday Americans, right? In the end, people still need to be able to pay their rent and put food on the table for their families. In the medium term, I do think we're going to have to look at another round of stimulus. Uh, I don't know if going through the traditional commercial banking system for like the PPP program, for example, was the best vehicle, or maybe it shouldn't have been the only one. There are others that have argued, for example, it could go through payroll companies. Um, what happens is in the traditional banking world, you've got a lot of businesses that are large clients, traditionally banked, well-connected, and that may well explain some of how women and minority-owned businesses or micro-enterprises were slower to access those funds than other companies. Um, so I think that's something in the medium term as we produce potentially a third round of stimulus that we are gonna have to talk about. Uh, we're also gonna have to talk about the restrictions on that money. Remember, the second round of PPP didn't run out in the same way that the first did so quickly. A lot of businesses are simply too scared about the lack of clarity on how these debts are forgiven. And some of the uses, uh, you know, you can use it for payroll, for rent, but you can't use it, for example, for supply inputs. So there were some categories of spend that handicap specific categories of businesses from really being able to make the best use of those funds. And I think we have a chance to correct it in a third round, uh, not faulting it in the first two, 
but asking that we continue to learn at the federal level how to make these policies more effective as we go. So in the medium term, I think that's where we're dealing with and what is the phased reopening look like and how do we get the proper fiscal stimulus to support the monetary policy that the Fed has been pursuing since the beginning of March, really, right, with the initial rate cut. Um, then there's what I think is the potentially the most important piece of this after the immediate term is that long tail of the recovery. The reality is consumer behaviors in many sectors may well change as a result of this pandemic. Um, many businesses will change their operating model in response. You know, some people may not go to restaurants as frequently. We've seen entertainment companies, instead of releasing to movie theaters, which are largely closed around the country, um, releasing directly to streaming services. That may change all manner of business models in this country. And sadly, some of the jobs um, that have been lost may not ever come back. Some of the businesses may not come back. I I've been there in an economic crisis trying to protect a small business. I know it's tough. I have a deep well of sympathy and empathy for these business owners because I know what it's like to try to you know, scratch and pull it together for payroll that week. And I think in the long tail of the recovery, we need to do a few things. We need to address um, labor and organizing rights, You know, the protections for working people, uh, that includes the people we're expecting to go for five and a quarter an hour in non-Fair Labor Standards Act jobs, that's the minimum wage here in Georgia, or set a little over $7 an hour for federal minimum wage. Uh, we're expecting these folks to stock a shelf or check us out at a grocery store cashier, uh, a cash register, to keep our families fed and our country moving in a crisis. Um, but even though we're calling them essential, we're not even paying them living wages. So protecting the rights for a safe work environment and fair wages, uh, labor and organizing rights, collective bargaining can be a huge part of how we advance that. Similarly, we have got to make sure uh, that we address pay equity in this nation, that we address childcare. This economy can't fully get back on its feet until we've solved the childcare conundrum. Um, and that's a much broader conversation because over the long run, if you really wanna unleash the potential uh, of all of this nation's economy, women have got to be full participants in it. That means making a hundred cents on the dollar to what a white man makes in the same job. And it means having equitable access to capital to start your own business. And it means finally having, um, you know, equitable access to economic opportunity and stability. So we've got to address some of those fundamental inequities in our system. And then the last thing is, I do think we have got to address this access to capital for women and minority owned businesses in particular. Um, it is not equal. The first round of PPP showed us that. Uh, and when you have large segments of your population that are prevented, um, from starting the business that they envision or they dream of, the whole economy suffers. So I think if we can address labor and organizing rights, if we can address minimum wage and worker protections, and if we can finally dig in to root out some of the structural inequity in our economic system and in our banking system and the access to capital for entrepreneurs, the long tail will be in good shape. And my suspect we're gonna need something in the order of like a Marshall Plan for post-COVID job recovery. And uh, if it were me, I would say starting with infrastructure is the right place. Uh, I have a particular passion for water infrastructure. A lot of this nation's aging water infrastructure um, not only creates tremendous leakage and waste, but it's a public health hazard. Nobody wants to see what happened in Flint, Michigan become the norm in this country. And it's a way to create great paying, um, in many cases, union jobs with full health, welfare, and pension 
while investing in America's future and building the infrastructure we need to support a 21st century economy. Uh, and certainly as a trucking executive and transportation executive for the last 12 years, I understand the need to fix this nation's um, surface transportation infrastructure, bridges, roads, a tunnel, but it extends to so many things, power, um, infrastructure. There, there are many ways we can go, and those are investments that the federal government right now is really failing our people to make. So one other short to medium-term issue that is on the agenda for Congress is the fiscal crisis that states are facing. Analysts uh, project that states are likely to face budget shortfalls of $765 billion over the next three years, and that's likely to force states to lay off or furlough teachers and state employees, cut state funding for education and healthcare programs, among others. Uh, here in Georgia, Governor Kemp has asked Georgia's agencies to plan for 14% budget cuts, which this time include cuts to education and healthcare programs in our state. What should Congress be doing to address the fiscal crisis that states are facing? Yeah, this is absolutely critical, Kyle. And there's a reason uh, that this has become, this is exactly the role of the federal government, right? To make sure that we do not have failing state and local governments, but particularly for state. Um, if you run a local government, right, you cannot run a budget deficit and run up debt the way we do at the national level um, for states. Uh, those services you mentioned, including right here in Georgia, this is healthcare for low-income folks. This is uh, the teachers who are already undervalued, overworked, and underpaid. Uh, you know, th this is not okay. We have got to make investments. If you want to return on investment in the business world, we know very early on that presumes you make an investment. We need to be investing in those communities, investing in education, investing in infrastructure. Um, and if you don't, investing, by the way, in the health care and health and well-being of your people, if you're not making those investments uh, in the long term, we will all suffer. So, yes, the federal government has a role there. I do not agree with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell that we should just let the states go bankrupt. That's an asinine idea said by somebody who's completely disconnected from reality. So we've got to help our states here to be able to provide the services that they need. And the last thing you want is a bunch of states in fiscal crisis in the fall if, God forbid, we see a second wave of this disease. Uh, Mitch McConnell is wrong. And David Perdue, who should know better as a business person, has been absolutely silent in standing up to him on this. Let's use this as an example to to get some insight on how you think about how you would approach the job of being a senator. So as you mentioned, this is something that has gotten caught up in congressional politics. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell initially said he would let states go bankrupt. He's now sort of backed off and floated the idea of a deal where they trade aid to states for legal liability protection for companies amidst the pandemic. Give us a sense of how you would approach legislating and working with your colleagues in a context like this. In this situation, how would you get the job done? Yeah, this is exactly the reason why I don't think a career politician is right for this job at this time. Um, in the business world, in the private sector, in fact, in every sector that's not politics, there's no scenario where you can steadfastly refuse to do your job and work with other people and then expect to keep that job. That only happens in politics. And I would approach it the same way I've approached tough situations in the business world. As you know, Kyle, you know, my family and I, we don't buy and uh, build 
healthy businesses. We literally are the people who come in when a business is on its deathbed, failing on the verge of liquidation and closing its doors. And we try to revive it in an ethical manner by investing in its people. And doing that means you have to be willing to sit down and build coalitions uh, that nobody else has been able to put together. And I've done that in the pension crisis last year when we restructured our business, nobody thought that we'd be able to pull off what we did. In less than three months, I got the Central States Pension Fund, the Teamsters and Machinists Unions, the lenders in our capital structure, our board and our management team and our customers all on the same page on an unprecedented deal to save 3,000 jobs with no wage cuts, no healthcare cuts, and saving thousands of pensions for retirees and employees. It was not easy, but it did require that we sat down with every single stakeholder hear what their priorities were, and build a coalition around a shared goal, which in this case was saving jobs, economic security, health care, and pensions. And, you know, in the Senate, it's the same. It's a, it's a committee of 100, and you have got to be good at putting together um, the coalition of people who are willing to get the job done on a specific issue. And we may not agree on everything. I want to be absolutely clear. I'm not talking about compromising on my values. I am pro-choice, pro-reproductive justice, and always will be. And, and I will not compromise that to cut a deal on infrastructure. The two are not related. And so we sit down with the people who are willing to work on an issue that the people of this country need us to get done. That should be the driving ethos every time, without exception. You know, I took a bunch of grief in the primary uh, over donating uh, to a Republican congressman years ago, but I never knew anything about his social politics, really. I knew him as the chairman of the Transportation Committee in the House of Representatives, and I was a trucking company chairman. And we were working to put $308 billion into this nation's desperately needed $308 billion into this nation's aging surface transportation infrastructure. And by the way, he was working with President Obama and his administration to do the same. I was proud to be part of that coalition. I don't agree with the guy's politics on social issues and never will. But he made the right call to invest in our nation's bridges and roads and ports. And because of that, uh, the 2,000 trucks a day my workers were driving on our roads all over this country were safer. You know, my job wasn't to play politics. My job was to protect the people who were counting on me. And in the U.S. Senate, I'm going to do the same thing. I'll sit down with anybody who's willing to give an honest effort to solve a problem that the people of Georgia need solved. And, you know, I will protect the people who are counting on me. That is what I've done my entire career, whether it was giving up my own equity to save those 3,000 jobs last year and thousands of pensions, um, whether it was putting in my own money during the Great Recession to save jobs and health care for my employees, or whether it's sitting at the table with people I don't agree with everything on to make sure that the roads and bridges my drivers were driving on is safe. That's exactly the kind of pragmatic approach to progress I will take in the U.S. Senate. And last question for you here. There is a primary next week, and you are one of several Democrats running to be the Democratic nominee for Senate in November. For voters in this Democratic primary, why should they choose you over other Democrats in this race? Well, I appreciate the question, Kyle. We're very fortunate in Georgia to have a lot of great Democrats, a deep bench. I saw it in 2018 when I ran with Stacey Abrams as the nominee for lieutenant governor. And I see it again, uh, top to bottom of the ballot this year. But there are 
three things that I think differentiate my campaign from anyone else in this primary. Um, and there are a lot of good folks. The first and foremost, I'm the only candidate that's run statewide. Uh, got over 1.8 million votes. You could take all of the votes David Perdue has ever won and all of the votes my opponents have ever won and put them in one bucket and I would still have more in my first run for office. Almost half a million more votes than David Perdue has ever won. If you want to talk about viability, that's the best argument for viability in this primary. And you know, when we talk about appealing not just to Metro Atlanta, but around the state, there were couple dozen counties in rural areas in 2018 where I overperformed the ticket by 2% uh, because we spent the time to go and hear and listen in those communities um, to the issues that mattered most to them. Uh, so I would say the statewide experience is the first, uh, the viability in terms of, you know, I had a million and a half dollars, a million and a half dollars to spend statewide and got 1.8 million votes, it's like 89 cents a vote if you were to run the math. Yeah, we've got another candidate in the race who spent $30 million, got 125,000 votes, right? That's a few hundred dollars a vote. And by the way, a year and a half later, I actually won that district, CD6. Um, uh, Stacy and I did, and of course, Congresswoman Lucy McBath won. I got 158,000 votes in John Ossoff's district. He got 125,000, but I only had a million and a half dollars to spend in the whole state. So I am scrappy and resourceful. I will go everywhere and talk to everyone. I have been through more than 150 Georgia counties in the last three years. That's more than anyone else in this race, probably more than the rest of them combined. Um, so that statewide experience is the first. Uh, the second is I do think the economy matters right now. Uh, you know, I'm very proud to be the only candidate endorsed by labor unions in this race. Five unions so far, the CWA, SMART, IBEW, the Carpenters, the Bricklayers, and the president, the head of the National Negotiating Committee for the Teamsters in my own industry. The guy who negotiated on the other side of the table with me for more than a decade, not only endorsed my campaign, but hosted a family, working families town hall to tell other labor leaders in the state to do the same. Um, and that's because he doesn't have to guess on my track record for working people. He knows what it is. Every time it's come down to putting my money where my mouth is, I'm there. Uh, that is my record. It is the reason I'm running. And I think that um, that business experience, creating good paying jobs with great benefits, many of them union, in fact, thousands and thousands of them union, the ability to save businesses nobody else thought were fixable, all of those things are more relevant now than they've ever been. As small business owners battle to keep the doors open, to keep their dream alive, they've poured their blood, sweat, tears, hearts into those businesses. And some of them are really having a hard time surviving in this moment. Having a senator who's been there and who understands what they're going through matters. Um, and, and again, things like healthcare, I would say the third thing is none of this is academic for me. You know, politicians usually go on air and only talk about the kind of jobs I've spent my career creating for 17 years. Uh, they go on and they talk about healthcare, but I've actually provided it, fully funded and paid for, for thousands of workers and their family. They go and they talk about why paid leave matter. I'm a working mom of two little kids in public schools. I've lived why it matters. And that's why I provided paid leave to my employees. This was not academic. Politicians talk about all this stuff and they do very little. I've spent the last 17 years actually solving these problems for my workers. And now I wanna go and do it for all the people in our state and in our country. So I think if you're looking for experience, that's the kind of experience we need right now. People who bring the receipts. If you're looking for experience championing working families, 
Uh, pick the woman who's been doing it for 17 years, who's backed by labor all across this state. If you're looking for a candidate that'll run the Abrams playbook and continue to expand the electorate, pick the candidate who ran by her side and helped her execute that plan. I believe in it because I lived it. And if you're looking for a candidate who's viable, pick the one who's already won half a million more votes than David Perdue's ever won. That's what I bring to the table. We got a lot of good Democrats, but there's no one else who can say those three things. All right. Well, Sarah Riggs Amico is a Democratic candidate for the U.S. Senate. That primary election is next Tuesday, June 9th. Sarah, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Kyle, it's good to be back. I hope we can continue the conversation again soon. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.